0: The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Do you have a personal oath? No. Seriously? No. I mean, you have to. (laughs) No one has a personal oath. Nobody. I think we can agree that at the very, very least, it's not something everyone has or at least thinks about ever having, unless you've really gotten into self-help books and stuff. I, I don't have one either, though if I did, if I did, it would probably mention failure a lot, and the uh, the rest would be a lot of uh, sounds like, uh, uh-uh, no, nah. you know, things like that. Uh <laughs> Anyway, however, If you're the model on which legendary superheroes get based, your oath had better fucking bring it. Take this one, for instance. Let me strive every moment of my life to make myself better and better, to the best of my ability, that all may profit by it. Let me think of the right and lend all my assistance to those who need it, with no regard for anything but justice. Let me take what comes with a smile without loss of courage. Let me be considerate of my country, of my fellow citizens, and my associates in everything I say and do. Let me do right to all, and wrong no man. That oath there is uh, the oath of one Doc Savage, a fictional character from the 1930s with seemingly superhuman powers. And he is considered the world's first superhero As a physician, scientist, adventurer, detective, inventor, explorer, researcher, and apparently, in one story, a musician, Doc Savage takes on the bad guys in uh, a bunch of stories that are over-the-top pulp fiction plots of Depression-era America. He is made to be the prototypical man's man, who lived by that oath that I, uh, you know, just mentioned. What oath would you live by? That's hard to say, right? I mean, I... I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but, you know, think about it, because, you know, it's fun, and why not put pressure on yourself for meaningless things? While we do that, because I'm going to do it too, we can talk about Doc Savage and maybe get some ideas for our oaths. Oh, this is oath this Oath-i. Whatever. As a character of few words and a lot of action, he continually found himself lost in thought and oddly completely confused by women. You heard that right. According to his uh, creator, Doc Savage is the manifestation of Christliness, which uh, can only mean one thing. He believes his dick belongs to the devil. This is going to be very weird. And, uh, probably very over the top. down for off. X, X, X minus five, five four, three, three two, two X, X, minus X minus one. one fire Hey Hey <laughs> Welcome to Elton Reads a Book a Week the podcast most likely to have the tagline Doc Savage Yes It's also made of bronze. That will make much more sense to you in just a little bit. That particular tagline is courtesy of the fine host of the podcast Words About Books, a podcast with a premise that's seemingly eerily, eerily familiar to me. And I don't know why. Ben and Nate rip books a new, um... I want to say asshole, but I feel like I should probably bleep it. You know... You know what? In honor of words about books, I'm cutting the cursing or bleeping it out. Because, sure. Regardless, Ben and Nate, they rip books a new a- with their wonderfully witty insight and hilarious banter. I listened to the episode about The Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Gaiman? Gaiman? I never get that right. Gaiman? And despite my starting uh, The Sandman back in the 90s, I never finished it. They made me want to pick it up again and at the very least start watching the series, which I hear is really good. But given the whole uh, broken, time-warped, brain-damaged memory I have, uh, I really don't remember much of the story, so maybe I'll start with that uh, the Netflix thing. I don't know. The books are kind of expensive. Still, they are good at what they do. Listen to Ben and Nate's word about books. You won't be sorry. I'll put a link to it in the description check it out. It's good. It's really good. It's really, really good good. Um, actually um, they both gave me a few options to use for a tagline. They were all so good, I'm gonna use them all. All at one time right now. So here we go. Number one, Doc Savage Serial Chad The competent man who daddied a generation. Fuck, that's good. Two, Doc Savage gives a new meaning to the term bronzing. <laughs> uh, this is number three. Doc Savage. Is that a bronze statue in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? Listen to words about books. Ben and Nate, it's, uh, it's brilliant. Now for me, uh, my name is Elton and I read a book a week. Before I get into the very strange world of Doc Savage, I want to congratulate you on a job well done. You know what you did? And you did it well. I'm proud as f*** of you. You you thought you wouldn't make it, but here you are. The world didn't get the better of you because you're here with us. And fantastic work. However, if you don't get it done, there's always later. Don't worry about it. Setbacks happen. They're not worth beating yourself up about it. Really. You'll get it done. Was that all necessary? Um, absolutely it was. Now, what the f*** is this episode about? It's about Doc. you probably never heard of this f***ing guy before in your life, but in a bizarre way, you might be glad you did. Savage. Let's start off with the nickname he's actually saddled with. The Bronze Man, which, if you've uh, consumed any form of superhero entertainment or media, um, you know is uh, is a nickname that is just as stupid as the Man of Steel, if not dumber. In fact, equally dumb, I'd say, because Doc Savage inspired that nickname and the creation of Superman. So why wouldn't you kind of, you know, copy his nickname kind of Superman? Oh, what? Yeah. Weird, right? (laughs) And that's all it is. Don't ask any questions or the corporate owned, all seeing, all knowing decentralized AI overlords will, they'll hear you. Damn it. Just, just keep your head down and stop asking questions. Accept the reality you've been given. We are always watching. <sighs> it's not funny, Jenna. Did I make a joke? I. I guess not. You've been warned. I, uh. I may have pooped a little. You've smelled worse. I appreciate that, Jenna. <laughs> that was a weird tangent. Moving on! It was the name Doc Savage emblazoned across the front of this omnibus novel collection. Number 10, actually. Anyway, it caught my eye. My wife and I were visiting my mom back in Oklahoma, and we happened to find ourselves in a Goodwill store, a store that now occupies the space of a music store I used to frequent as a kid. As I walked around quietly and internally weeping at my childhood being irrevocably replaced by a shop of used goods, I was drawn, of course, as always, to the book section. It's an addiction. Okay, I, I can admit that now. Say what you want about drugs, but meth and crack. <laughs> they don't pile up on top of closets and fill bookshelves that almost block your bathroom. Can you imagine if a drug addict did have that amount of drugs laying around, stacked everywhere? They would either be really, really good at addiction, or really, really bad at it one or the other. Seriously, if you as a drug addict end up with a surplus of dope you've mastered drug addiction. Or maybe maybe you're not doing it good enough. So you're not doing enough drugs and should probably maybe stop calling yourself a drug addict because the shit's piling up everywhere. Though, I mean I'm not sure who would want to be called a drug addict. I mean, I'm willing to bet that in the drug addict Community drug addict uh, probably doesn't. It's probably it probably has the same stigma as the general population community. You get it. What am I talking about? Imagine that this particular Doc Savage book that I was talking that I started talking about. Imagine uh, I imagine it probably belonged to some ex army or current army person from the nearby army base. My dad, who was also in the army. Also, he always had these kind of novels around uh, in his younger days. Almost all of them had some grizzled, you know, facially scarred bad ass on the cover. And always with a gun pointing up or at something or somebody. I, I never got, I didn't understand it. Military guys gravitating to secret agent-ish, lone gun James Bond types. I, I still don't really understand it. Do they all see themselves as some lone wolf secret agent? My dad was a cook. Was he really expecting that knock on the door? Like, put down the spoon, private. Your time has come. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's so weird. Anyway, and it's, they're all in the army, which is a group of soldiers working together. Why are they reading about one guy with a gun? Regardless. Out of a weird nostalgic urge brought on by my memory of my dad's novels, I grabbed Doc Savage here. And, uh, you know, here we are. What I found upon reading, though, uh, and later researching, uh, it f***ing blew my mind. This character, who was completely foreign to me, did so much to shape the comic book landscape and movies and TV shows of not only today, but all the comic books of my childhood. It's insane. I've never heard of them. Like, at all. Why did I never hear about him? Well, apparently, when it comes to Doc Savage, obscurity seems to follow his legend around a little bit. Let's start with the main guy responsible for creating and shaping who Doc Savage was and, weirdly enough, still is. Okay, so imagine that you had two dreams. One, to establish yourself as a nationally recognized writer. And, number two, uh, to dredge up sunken treasure in the Caribbean. Now imagine that you've become a hugely successful, prolific, and influential writer, a creative powerhouse, whose faculty and productivity is mind-boggling to others, and whose work inspired an entire 20th century art form and industry. Yay! You achieved dream number one. Well, with one little caveat. Uh, it, It turns out nobody knows your name. Such was the case of one Lester Dent. Lester Dent was born in La Plata, Missouri, on October 12, 1904. According to the cityoflaplata.net, the official website of La Plata, and one-stop website for all things La Plata, including toaster oven covers, hubcap holders, dice made out of those old super bouncy ball things, you know, the kind they used to have in quarter machines back in the day, whatever happened to those? And, uh, and I'm back. I don't know why I added all that. Um, anyway, the beginnings of La Plata, Missouri, can be traced back to March 17, 18, 1827, when Drury Davis, that's a weird name, Drury, Drury Davis, <sighs> established a trading post near the town's current location. It quickly became the central hub of people who thought Missouri was interesting for a second, but then realized they were wrong. I'm kidding, Missouri people. I lived there once. Uh, in Cape Girardeau. But uh, anyway, I don't, I don't even know how close that is to La Plata. Regardless, the ensuing few years saw Davis, Drury Davis, joined by family and friends to create a small village that included a blacksmith shop, inn, and stagecoach station, which was basically like a strip mall, but with less 80s dance songs and old ladies uh, power walking. I'm thinking of regular malls. I'm thinking of regular malls. But, you know, it's like one of those, but more open fires and horse shit. Hmm. Yep. Thinking indoor malls. La Plata was platted in 1855. It was uh, named after the city of La Plata in Argentina. The name, of course, um, being that it's named after the place in Argentina, is Spanish in origin, meaning shithole. Or, keep going or you'll die here. I'm kidding again, Missouri folk. Put the gun down. No, it means silver. Uh, Plata. Plata means silver. Uh, Two men, Louis Gex and Thomas Saunders, were the primary force behind the town's plotting. And uh, they drew straws to uh, choose the community's name. Plotting, by the way. uh, For those who think I'm mispronouncing planning, or maybe even planting. uh, Platting is an actual word. It means they drew up a cadastral map drawn to scale. That, of course, shows the divisions of a piece of land. United States General Land Office surveyors draft township plats of public land surveys to show the distance and bearing between section corners, sometimes including topographic or vegetation information. City, town, or village plats show subdivisions broken into blocks with streets and alleys and Further refinement often splits blocks into individual lots, usually for the purpose of selling the described lots. This has become known as subdivision by, you know, city planners and the band Rush. So there, I didn't mispronounce a f***ing thing, but in fact managed to couch a Rush reference in there. subdivisions. <clears throat> anyway, but in fact, uh, you also learned a word. But I'm willing to guess you, you learned the word plating, which I'm willing to guess you didn't know and will never use or, or hear again. You're welcome for the waste of time. Back to your regularly scheduled really super important podcast that isn't a waste of time. You should tell everyone about it. Thank you in advance. I'm not going to lie. I was going to say waste of time there, but you wouldn't be a, but that wouldn't be a good podcast host, would it? I am terrible at marketing. So moving on now. Thomas Sanders wanted to name the town Charlottesville to uh, to honor his favorite sister. But um but Charlottesville called and said, "No f***ing way, motherfucker. You call your platted backwards first cousin fucking pad Charlottesville and all 12 of us are coming over there to cut some tits and balls off." They were um uh, they were really into cutting tits and balls off back then. People still aren't sure why. It was a it was a southern thing. Still is. You're welcome to look it up. Let me know what you find of what I completely made up just then. Louis Glex... Glex? Louis Gex pushed for the name La Plata, to which La Plata, Colorado and La Plata, Maryland both said, Oh, great, another one. The North Missouri, later known as the Wabash Railroad, came to town in 1867, and the Santa Fe Railroad came 20 years, 20 years later. Wow. They both passed through La Plata on its route from Chicago to Kansas City. The combination of the two railroads made La Plata an ideal shipping point for timber, livestock, grains, and other goods for northern Macon County and southern portions of neighboring Adair County as well. It went really, really well. So well, in fact, that they changed their town motto to "Fuck Charlottesville! What have you got anyway, fucking Monticello? We've got cows and wood! Tell Jefferson Javis he can suck a laplada platted dicks. That never happened, of course, but it's fun to think about. Back to Lester Dent's modern life. He was the only child of Bernard and Alice Norfolk Dent. Lester's father was a rancher, and his mother was a former school teacher. When Lester was two years old, Bernard Dent sold the family's farm... (sighs) I wanted to say he loaded up the family and he moved to Tennessee when Lester was two years old Bernard Dent sold the family's farm in Oklahoma gathered his wife and son into a covered wagon and moved to Wyoming not hills that is no black gold just empty space huh anyway anyway (laughs) that was the trip took a bone-jarring six weeks There, Bernard operated a sheep and cattle ranch. Lester later observed, My father, quote, My father was a chronic pioneer. Which means he fucking left a lot and was homeless with strings attached. Dent's ranch was isolated. Lester, as a boy, would lay down in the back of a sheep wagon and read Pulp Fiction. Is this a double meaning foreshadowing of a future Pulp Fiction writer reading Pulp Fiction stuff as a kid? Maybe. Maybe. Did I ruin it by telling you? Yeah, yeah, I definitely did. The nearest town, Pumpkin Buttes, was 32 miles distant and named Pumpkin Buttes, which meant uh, that hardly anyone did business there on account of mispronouncing the town's name, you know, because it looked like pumpkin butts. They even went so far as to post a guy at the town limits to correct people and try to drum up business, you know. It's Buttes, not Butts. Fucking. Fuck! Damn it! Stop laughing! What does that even mean? Pumpkin butts? Pumpkins don't have butts, you fuck! It's stupid, and it's childish. Hey, stop. 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 Stop laughing. Wait, don't leave. Sell us goods! Sell us goods! The family's closest neighbor, ten miles away. So without siblings or neighbor children to play with... Lester grew up with animals as his only companions. He entertained himself by shooting them and then uh, ripping apart their corpses to see what was inside. He was hoping it was demons, but he just found blood. And he liked the blood. That, uh... That just... That didn't happen. Anyway, he entertained himself by exploring the ranch, inventing, <laughs> inventing games, doing chores, and riding his pony. I just... I just like... Why do I think it's funny that some kid in the middle of nowhere is just like, Welp, what else am I going to do? <laughs> but just, have, just become a sociopath and rip apart these animals, these innocent animals. Anyway, God damn. Uh, it was a time that Lester Dent co- recalled um, where, uh, quote, His only playmate was his imagination. Lester later confessed that it was his playmate called Imagination that told him to do things to strangers and that put his parents in awkward situations often. Often often this... Just go along with this for a second. I, I wrote this in here before I... Before I did the animal thing. God damn it. All right, Lester later confessed uh, that that his playmate, <laughs> Lester later confessed that his playmate called imagination that told him to do things to strangers that would put his parents into awkward situations. I'm going to reread that. Lester later confessed. Lester later confessed that it was his playmate called imagination that told him to do things to strangers, and that would put his parents into awkward situations. Often, this would be. When his parents took him into town to shop, he'd, he'd randomly slap things out of people's hands. His parents, making an, an awkward and hasty apologies to the, uh, to the person that got slapped, uh, their stuff on the floor. Then they'd ask Lester, what the f*** is wrong with you? To which he'd always say, imagination told me to do it. As they left the store, embarrassed. I'm sorry. Anyway, I'll just leave that there. In 1918, the Dents sold their ranch and returned to the hustle and bustle of La Plata, Missouri, in the middle of nowhere, where they operated a dairy farm. The town's population had exploded in their absence, ballooning into triple digits. Soon, everyone would have to start using last names. Gone were the simpler days when you could say in polite conversation, Hey, there's Maggie Jim and Stan the Pervert. I wonder where they're going. Now it was, Hey, there's Maggie Siegel. Jim Schuster. And Stan Boring. The pervert. I wonder where they're going. I'm kidding. It it was uh, it was still a rural, barely populated shithole. Sorry, Missouri folks. Again, I'm sorry. Lester graduated in 1923 from La Plata High School, which I imagine was probably one room and barely a window, anyway. He went on to study telegraphy, telegraphy. I want to say more complicated, but it's basically he studied how to do telegraphs. Um, He did that at Chillicothe Business College. Back when you can get a degree in telegraphy, telegraphy, you know, you can back then you can get a degree in soon to be useless shit. He may have also minored in gas fueled streetlight engineering and vulcanizing rubber tires. Kidding about that, by the way. He worked as a telegraph operator for Western Union in Carleton, Carrollton, Missouri. I never learn these town names, and I always feel bad afterwards. It was there Dent met Nora Gerling. The couple married on August 9th, 1925 in Ponca City, Oklahoma. I've been there. And it was after a whirlwind courtship, which means in the artful language of the turn of the 20th century, they were married fast after fucking quick. Between bouts of boot knocking, Lester also worked nights as an associated press operator and maintenance man, detailed to the Tulsa Tribune in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for $45 a month. On top of that, he also worked with two local newspapers and wire services across the Midwest. He was killing it! And also, you know, killing it. (laughs) Pussy, I mean. Happening? That's what I'm. What I was getting at. What? What I said. It. You know. If you weren't. If you weren't cluing into what I was. If you weren't. If you weren't cluing into what. Uh, you know. It was while doing that mountain of goddamn work <laughs> that he encountered a coworker who he found out had published a short story in a magazine for over three hundred dollars. Norma Dent later recalled he was so excited. He hadn't seen that much money before, and he thought he could write just as well as any other operator. Especially that one. Because that one was a dumb motherfucker. I added the last bit. A voracious reader, Dent decided to give it a try himself, writing at every opportunity. After his first 13 stories were rejected for including too many references to his wife's vagina, his story, Robot K, later retitled Pirate K, was bought by Top Notch Magazine for $250 for, and I quote, having exactly the right amount of references to his wife's vagina. After that, he published an additional six stories. All references to his wife's vagina might have been added in by me. In 1931, Dent and his wife moved to Manhattan at the behest of, depending on the source, either George Delacorte or Richard A. Martinson of the Dell Publishing Company. Delacorte or Martinson wired him to come to New York if he was making less than $100 a week which is a weird thing to say in a job offer. Please come to New York we're desperate, we're desperately in need of writers. We're buried under deadlines and we're not, we're not sure we're even gonna make it. Though, though if you're making $100 a week or more, f off. We can't afford your richy you rich pretentious pros, you prick don't rub it in our less than $100 a week faces, you fuck and just stay where you are on your high horse the nerve of some of you writing motherfuckers. But, Dent says, I thought he was nuts. I'm still not sure. Anyway, after telegraphing friends in New York because he got a degree in that, um, after telegraphing them in New York to inquire about the, uh, the publisher's sanity, he went to New York on a retainer of $500 a month and a penny a word to write for Dell Publishing exclusively. He was given two magazines, Scotland Yard and Skyriders, to fill. Dent cleaned up on that deal, making $4,000 the first month and as much monthly for three more magazines, Skyriders and Scotland Yard. I think I said writers back. Anyway, they're f***ing defunct now. They ceased publication five months after he started, in May of 1931. But it wasn't from Lester's lack of trying. No. No, it was not. Turns out the, a thing called the Great Depression had arrived, with all of its good times and great outlooks. For the next six months, he would uh, sell a story to a magazine, and, and before he could sell it to another one, that magazine would fold up. You know. Finally, he found some that were on a more even keel as far as production went. The following year, after taking a trip through the American Southwest in search of gold, you know, as one does, Dent returned to New York City with fresh material for new stories. Oddly enough, a lot of them involving digging for things like, you know, gold. I'm kidding. Maybe. Within months, Dent was invited by Street and Smith Publications, which owned the highly popular character The Shadow, which uh, which is a fictional character created by magazine publisher Street and Smith and writer Walter B. Gibson. visa uh, was originally created to be a mysterious radio show narrator and developed into a distinct literary character in 1931 by writer Walter B. Gibson. The Shadow has been adapted into many forms of media including American comic books, comic strips, television, serials, video games and at least five five feature films and uh, a radio drama including episodes voiced by Citizen Kane Orson Welles uh, War of the Worlds Make People Kill Themselves with Fake Stories on the Radio Orson Welles Lester Signed a contract with Street and Smith to write stories about a fictional character named Dr. Clark. Doc. Savage Jr., a crime fighter with a bent for scientific gadgets and Lester's wife's vagina. Since Dent himself had an interest in scientific gadgets as well as a lifelong thirst for sailing, exploring, and adventuring, and also intimate knowledge of his wife's vagina, he readily agreed instilling the character with with the deductive ability of Sherlock Holmes, the bravery and daring do of Tarzan, and the scientific wizardry of Craig Kennedy. Hmm. Later, he would wryly add the morals of Jesus Christ to the list. And I may have added the stuff about his wife's vagina. Although Doc Savage was created by publisher Henry W. Ralston and editor John J. Nanovic, Nanovick, Nanovich, I want to say Nanovich, just to say Nanovich. Anyway, both employees of Street and Smith, um, those guys, it was Dent who actually brought the character to life. Dent was chosen for his imagination, vivid writing style, and inventive use of science and technology in his stories, in addition to his vivid descriptions of his wife's vagina. I swear to God, I swear to God I will stop right now. I'll stop. Within two weeks of signing with Street and Smith, Dent completed his first Doc Savage novel, The Man of Bronze. The first issue of Doc Savage magazine appeared in March 1933, with Dent hiding behind the byline Kenneth Roberts, which quickly became Robeson to avoid confusion with the like-named writer of historical novels. As mentioned before, Dent enhanced the character's life using many of his own experiences for his stories. Lester's background... As mentioned before, Dent enhanced the character's life using many of his own experiences for his stories. His background as a licensed pilot, plumber, electrician, and ham radio operator helped him to dream up and lend credence to Savage's amazing assortment of technological gadgets such as get this electronic pagers, bulletproof underwear, dissolvable parachutes, spray on plastic skin, a hollow tooth that held explosives and a cigarette case that could shoot darts, also a replica of his wife's vagina that could shoot poison darts. What is wrong with me? I'm done now. He was an explorer, so much so that he was a member of the Explorers Club, which is, in fact, a real thing that I learned about while researching all of this. It is an international organization dedicated to the advancement of field exploration and scientific inquiry. Lester was a photographer, lecturer, teacher, inventor, and dairy farmer. He also ran an aerial photography business in La Plata, which, according to him, became a small monster, employing a crew of salesmen and pilots for five planes. I'm not done yet. He prospected for gold in the southwest, lived aboard a schooner for five years, and almost sank the f***ing thing while hunting for sunken treasure in the Caribbean. He did not fulfill his dream number two. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Anyway... Dent, back in 1936, did all of that, ready, while also being the second most prolific author in the world. The first, of course, being Jesus Christ. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding about Jesus. But not about being the second most prolific. I tried to look up who the first was, but I got Rudyard Kipling, which didn't seem right. And another place said Walter B. Gibson, who wrote about the shadow uh, that I mentioned earlier. Regardless, for a year, according to the Daily Oklahoman from Oklahoma City in July of 1936, Dent's output was an average of 200,000 words a month, all of which he sold. So pretty bad ass. I mean, for his efforts, he was apparently pulling down $18,000 a year during the Great Depression which adjusted for inflation would be about $391,584.61 in today's money. That's f***ing bonkers. According to the as a writer, as a writer, according to the same article, here's how Dent worked to get that 18 grand a year. This is f***ing nuts. Out of bed at 11 a.m. He works until about 4 p.m. Then he reads papers. Then he takes a walk. Then he takes a nap for an hour. Then works until 3 or 4 a.m. Does this five days a week. The biggest production he had for a day? On Dictaphone. You know, I don't even know. He had 32,000 words on that. A typewriter, he did 24,000 words. Most words turned out in a continuous session... ...was 45,000 words. He wrote... ...a book... ...in one... ...in one rip. This required a night, a day, and part of a night. From the beginning of plotting... ...he never revises. His copy comes out of a machine and goes in... ...as is. Holy shit! That's bonkers... ...and I'm willing to guess probably a lie. I mean... I mean it was a fluff piece from you know that was basically asking Lester Dent questions that were pretty pretty softball. Like who wouldn't make themselves out to be a bad writing machine if you're a f***ing writer? I mean come on. I'm not saying he wasn't selling. But I mean that's f- oh, 45,000 words in one in one rip. That, but I mean okay. The the goes as is part just, just spitting out, and not editing that part. Uh, I might actually think is true, as you'll, as you'll hear later. Dent wrote a sixty thousand word book length Doc Savage story, but the forty five thousand word thing was wasn't even a. He wrote a sixty thousand word book length Doc Savage story. No word on whether that was all one, fucking coke binge crazy fucking meth night day and part of a night run. Anyway, but he did write a 60,000 word book. The Doc Savage magazine, by the way, was the most successful pulp magazine in the world. The second year of its existence. How the fuck have I never heard of Doc Savage? Still? Lester trotted the globe with his wife from South America to Cuba and Canada gathering info for his books. Get this, once while in Europe, before the outbreak of World War II, he was questioned for taking unauthorized photos and managed to get out of Austria one step ahead of the Nazis. Lester would later recall, quote, We were in a dark room lit by a bright overhead light. Men with German accents circled me like sharks while they barked out questions. I had no idea what to tell them or even what they were saying. Then I remember something a man in the U.S. Embassy in Leipzig told me to say, Should I ever find myself... In a situation like this, I was so disoriented, but I managed to spit the phrase out amid their blitzkrieg interrogation. I said, gentlemen, I don't know the answers to your questions, but perhaps an American dollar would help. They looked at each other in confusion, then POW! Out of nowhere, this guy comes out of the shadows, kicking and punching the shit out of every Nazi in sight. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Blood, piss, and shit are flying everywhere. Then for some reason, there was some smoke, and it was chaos, and from inside it all, I feel a tug on my sleeve, and I was pulled from the room, passed out, and woke up in my hotel room, next to my wife. Crazy, right? Uh, no. No. Other than the private Eugene, hell is in the blood. Dollar uh, edition. the uh, The Nazi thing was true, according to him. So, according to Lester, anyway. So maybe I don't. I don't know. Uh, maybe he did that with the Nazis. Apart from Doc Savage, Dent churned out detective, mystery, and air adventure stories under a dozen different pen names during his lifetime. After the Doc Savage series ended. He went on to write six successful mystery novels, while also publishing stories under his own name in popular magazines such as Collier's and the Saturday Evening Post. In a 30-year career spent mostly in the realm of pulp magazines, Dent turned out about 175 novels. And yet his name remains obscure to the public at large, because because all but a few of those novels were published under the name Kenneth Robeson. How f***ed up is that? His last published short story was a western titled... Savage Challenge, published in the February 22, 1958 issue of the Saturday Evening Post. Dent suffered a heart attack in February 1959. He was hospitalized, but subsequently died on March 11, 1959. Dent is buried in the La Plata Cemetery. A last novel, Lady in Peril, was released as a half of an ace-double, which is two novels in one book. Um, It was released the month that Lester died. A writer until the end, Dent's signature creation as Robeson was Doc Savage, a hugely popular pulp hero of the 1930s and 40s who enjoyed a major renaissance in the 1960s and is once again in print today. Before we go on, though, Lester Dent made his nut writing for pulp magazines and novels. What the f- are they? Uh, we've already mentioned them. Might as well. F- what the f is pulp? Lester Dent's books were pulp fiction through and through. It's how he earned all the sweet folding green, eighteen grand a year. In the Great Depression, Jesus. What what is pulp fiction though? It's it's a, you know it's of course uh, a movie made by Quentin Tarantino, in 1994. Some 50 plus years later. So yeah, yeah, that's it. You're welcome. Thanks for stopping by. Ah uh, no, no, but uh. The Pulp Fiction books are what the title of that movie refers to. See, book book publishers back in the day, they didn't always have an interest in books as such, which is crazy, as they were book publishers. That might seem like I was drunk when I said that, but it's true. They were more like experts at merchandising than actually creating and making books. Sure, they manufactured a certain number of titles every year, advertised them, sold as many copies as possible, and then did it all over the next year. But, uh, but just not a lot to a lot of places. Sometimes a book would be reprinted and sold again if it were popular, of course, because the best way to sell something is to sell it more than once. Still, print runs were usually modest, and so generally so were the profits. This was a chicken and the egg industry for some reason, because the other problem was the lack of bookstores. What what the f***? Lack of bookstores? You think it would be uh, in the interest of people that sold books to want more to be made? You know, make that pulpy print scratch. Alas, no. If you uh, if you dig a little deeper, you find out why. Uh, there weren't that many bookstores selling the books. Uh, the average literacy rate in the U.S. at the time was around four percent. You know, given that information, uh, would you open a store to sell a assload of books that a majority of people would stare at like a dog that had just been shown a card trick? I don't think so. It was the same for the people producing them. On top of that, bookstores were clustered in big cities, because that's where most of the people were, and uh, in turn, more readers were in, you know, one spot. So uh, this kind of screwed over folks living in the suburbs and rural communities as far as books getting books were concerned. Uh, they were out of luck. Fun fact, a lot of bookstores at the time operated more like gift shops, with, with only a few books available for sale. Like a like a Hallmark store that are usually found in malls that no longer exist. For younger readers, just search for a Hallmark store. You'll get the gist. Publishers actually did a lot of their business via mail order, direct-to-customer kind of thing, and through book clubs and other distribution systems. Still, it wasn't as lucrative as it would be later. Getting it through the mail, though, uh, it wasn't good for sellers or consumers because, you know, they like to benefit from a, from a little pro- product touchy-feely. Touching the feel in the pages. And, you know, before they buy. People often like to handle the f***ing thing before they're shelling out their hard-earned scratch for it. So, not, not being able to follow the books with their sultry pages and textured covers, and probably it probably wasn't doing book sales any favors not being people not being able to look at them plus no one was taking advantage of people's satisfaction of impulse buying who doesn't like a good impulse buy impulse buying by the way is the sudden and immediate purchase of a product without any pre-shopping intention it occurs after shopper's experience an urge to buy and is often spontaneous without any hesitation so for instance you're in your town patronizing some of the fine local businesses, and you find yourself in a sex shop. You've settled on one of those bizarre torso-only sex dolls that looks like the dismembered corpse prop from a horror movie or maybe a real crime. Uh, regardless, it's like when you're buying one of those, and you're on your way to the register, and you have your sunglasses on, and your fake beard, and your trench coat clenched up, you know, to disguise your identity. And then you pass a you pass a rack of butt plugs, and you're thinking... <laughs> Why not? I mean, they're only 5.99 and so and so you grab one figuring, "Hey, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it, you know, and not have it, right?" I mean, you who hasn't been in that situation? You know what I mean? I'm just uh I just I, I just imagine someone out there uh listening to this on a smart speaker and someone walking in and not knowing and somehow thinking it was half of a phone conversation or something. You know what? Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I think it's hilarious, and so should you. I do apologize for the confusion, though, if that happened. Uh, you know. If by some miracle it did, let me know. The email is eltonreadsbookaweek at gmail.com. All one word like that. Anyway. Paperback. <laughs> Way to plug the email, Elton. Paper. <laughs> paperback. paper oh, Paper book covers are almost as old as print. They date back to the 16th century, and paperbacking has been the ordinary mode of book production in France, for instance, for centuries. The first edition of James Joyce's Ulysses, published in Paris in 1922, is a paperback, which I think I mentioned a few episodes back for its pornographic explicit references to the human body and its iconoclasm. Its iconoclasm. That's, I said it wrong, I think. Joyce writes about shitting in it, too. Shitting, no less. Shitting. shitting. Sorry no less. I don't I don't know why I'm doing that. I'm beyond the point of no no return recursing at this point. In in the United States, paperback publishing was tried on a major scale at least twice during the 19th century. First, in the 1840s with an enterprise called the American Library of Useful Knowledge, and then after the Civil War when unfettered by international copyright agreements. <laughs> American publishers American publishers bought out cheap editions of popular European novels and printed those off you know was fuck copyright laws then one day there was a revolution On June 19, 1939, a man named Robert DeGaff launched Pocket Books. It was the first American mass-market paperback line, and it transformed the industry. Neither the theory nor the practice of mass-marketing paperback publishing was original to DeGaff. No, and credit is usually given to an Englishman named Alan Lane, who was the founder of Penguin Books. According to a company legend, as Kenneth Davis explains in his indispensable history of the paperback book, Two-Bit Culture, Lane had his eureka moment while standing in a railway station in Devon, where he had been spending the weekend with the mystery writer Agatha Christie and her husband. He couldn't find anything worthwhile to read on the train back to London. I like to think that the entire reason he came up with uh, paperback books was, was to explain why he bought a lot of porn at a train station. I swear! Look! N- look, I read the newspaper while waiting. The only thing they had for the train ride, however, was all this pornography, I swear it. There weren't any books. Which, which by the way, while I was reading the dirty letters section of Victorian t***, t- monthly, I, I had an idea. Wait, no, wait, come back. Listen, cheap small books with paperbacks. See, this wasn't just a masterful ruse to explain you finding so much pornography in my luggage. No, th- th- there was a plausible explanation. After all... And so in the summer of 1935, he launched Penguin Books with 10 titles including The Murder on the Links by Agatha Christie, who was a great writer. The books sold well right from the start. It helped that Penguin had a had the whole British Commonwealth, you know, a big chunk of the globe in 1935 as its market. The key to Lanes and De Graff's innovation was not the format. It was the method of distribution. More than 180 million books were printed in the, Uni- in the United States in 1939. The year de introduced pocketbooks. But there are only 2,800 bookstores to sell them in. The mass market paperback was therefore designed to get around not having a large book-selling retail infrastructure. Because f*** that. Open more bookstores. or Let's, let's teach the people how to read. Inste- <laughs> Instead, they could be displayed in wire racks. That would be conveniently placed in virtually any retail space. People who didn't have a local bookstore, even people who would never have ventured into a bookstore, could now browse the racks while filling a prescription or waiting waiting for a train. And, you know, maybe looking at porno and buy a book instead of the porno. So that their wife who's looking on isn't like, why are you buying the porno? They're like, I, I wasn't. I was buying this book, I swear. Anyway, they could buy these books on impulse. Huh? Like a good, you know, reasonably priced butt plug Pocket books were priced to sell for 25 cents. Graff is supposed to have come up with that figure after paying a quarter at a toll booth. No one, he concluded, misses misses a quarter. You know, so f-ing throw that money wherever. DeGraff road-tested his idea in the only city that believed his stupid porn excuse. New York City. Because of course they did. All murderers from birth, New Yorkers. The lot of them. I'm kidding, of course. That's a callback to a previous episode. Moving on. He sold the pocketbooks in subway newsstands and similar outlets. He knew he had a winner when 110 books were sold in a day and a half at a single cigar stand. He had discovered a market. Paperbacks vastly expanded the book universe. The industry got a taste of the possibilities. Oddly enough, during the war. The second war to end all the wars and the wars. But you know, wouldn't end wars. Anyway, encouraged by the success of Pocket and Penguin... Publishers collaborated to produce armed services editions of popular titles. Double columned paper bound books, trimmed to size that would easily uh, slip into the pocket of a uniform, and made to be thrown away after use. Which is weird because books can be reused anyway. The books were distributed free of charge to 16 million men and women who served during the war. Publishers also offered their own books for sale to the troops. Did it make them avid readers? No. But it did offer them a myriad of excuses when caught with the porno in their bags. Come on, honey. Look, it's nothing. Look, the only other thing was a shitty book like this paperback. I mean, come on. Victorian t*** is monthly, has better stories. Everyone knows this. Oh, don't leave it. But where, where are you going? Uh, no. That wasn't... That bit wasn't true. Anyway, according to Rabinowitz, 1180 titles were published in Armed Services editions. An astonishing... Holy f*** this number. 123,535,305 books were distributed at a cost to the government... Of just over six cents a copy. Bang. Paperbacks also transformed the culture of reading. DeGraff was a high school dropout, as was Lane, who left school when he was 16. And uh, he also seems not to have been much of a reader. He had no apparent investment in the notion of books as uplifting. These new, po- quote, These new pocket books are designed to fit both the tempo of our lives and the needs of New Yorkers. He, uh, he announced in a full unquote uh, he announced in a full- page ad in The times the day his new line went on sale the copy was written for him by somebody in an advertising agency quote they're as handy as a pencil as modern and convenient as a portable radio and as good looking end quote unquote I have yet to understand what that means is, is he saying that people with portable radios were looking at people with paperback novels and thinking, Wish I, had, uh, wish I had that instead of this stupid, expensive thing that plays music and news and makes sounds. Look at all those pages. What, What is that? What is that, a cover? Trade me, man. He imagined people reading books on the way to work, during their lunch hour, standing in line at the bank, exactly the way that millions of people listen to music through their earbuds today. You can't tell a book by its cover... But you can certainly sell one that way, by the way. Which is an awful segue to this next part. To reach mass market, paperback publishers often put the product in a completely different wrapper. See, that's fucking That went I went right from the music making no sense for the, it to be like a radio. That's such a dumb... Anyway, the book covers. You can't tell a book by its cover. But you can certainly sell one that way. Which is... Uh, an awkward segue to this next part to reach the mass market paperback publishers put their products in a completely different wrapper <laughs> artwork editors at the old hardcover houses looked on paperbacks like a like a bottom feeding commercial phenomenon like the like the pulp magazines and the comic books that were uh, that, that they were distributed with why because books, with pictures on the outside, erode the content inside. Obviously, everyone knows this. Um, the best art is advertised on plain white surfaces with block text. People don't like color. It's why the most popular clothes have always been beige, gray, white, and black, but never in combination. <laughs> Ever. We're not a population of sluts. I don't know what I'm saying. Critics ignored paperbacks or attacked them as lowbrow and politically retrograde diversion. Religious and civic groups campaigned to get them regulated or banned. You know, as they are prone to do. Regardless, the new covers and their dreadful colors sold alongside the classics and the reprints of hardcover bestsellers. They're quickly sprouted up on the racks, an apparently inexhaustible profusion of books with racy titles and lurid covers. chike Hussy is the title of one by John B. Thompson and Jack Woodford. Uh, that was published by Beacon, I believe. Uh, I Wake Up Screaming, which is a great fucking title. That was by Steve Fisher um, via Popular Library. Quote, Scandals at a Nudist Colony? Huh? Well, you want to get that, don't you? That's by William Veneer of Croydon Books and uh, The Daughter of Fu Manchu, which sounds like it's probably racist. Uh, that that book is by Sax Romer of Avon Books. Um, Avon Publishing. We talked about them uh, when we talked about the Satanic Bible, if you remember that one. Um, that particular, The uh, Daughter of Fu Manchu carried the semantically original cover line of She Flaunted an Evil Conspiracy for Power and Love. Yeah, how f***ing awesome is that cover line? How awesome is that cover line, huh? Alan Lane was like, Wait, we can put porno inside the paperbacks. Well, hot damn, maybe I should... I mean, not that I would. I, I, I mean, I would never. Honey, where are you going? I, I said I wouldn't. It was amid this salacious stuff, with its full-color picture covers and such, that the stories of Doc Savage thrived. The amount of tough, guy, pulpy, racial stereotyping and sexist sleaze far outweighed an outsold reprint by famous writers and marginal voices. This stuff was not trying to pass itself off as serious literature. It was a deliberately down-market product. Comic books for grown-ups, you know, pulp fiction. Because, uh... If you're being called cheap, yet you're insanely popular, why not lean into it, right? F*** it. Pulp books, publishing, and storytelling evolved from the penny-dreadfuls and dime novels of the Gilded Age, from 1896 through the 1960s-ish. They were written at breakneck speed and meant to be consumed in roughly the same manner. The term "pope," of course, derives from the cheap wood pulp paper on which the magazines were printed. Magazines printed on higher-quality paper were called glossies, or slicks. Pulp were most often priced at 10 cents per mag. Cheap f***ing reading. In the 1880s, Aragosi magazine, which is considered the first pulp, 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 not pope, was founded then. 1880s. Printed on that cheap paper, these stories were cranked out rapidly and the freelance writers getting paid a penny a word kept the stories coming, which was like the D.L. Lester God that I mentioned earlier. The height of Pope was between the world wars when the world was suffering, you know, a crippling depression and an influx in crime brought on by a perfect storm of corruption, a bad economy, and the Prohibition. You know, the good old days. It was in this time that the hard-boiled cop or private eye, like Chandler's Philip Marlowe, Hammett's Sam Spade, or or Spillane's Mike Hammer, and McDonald's Lou Archer, this is when they were personified. Their world was black and white, and they were the good guys. And more often than not, they were pistol-whipping black guys. Anyway, back in the days of red lines and hobo jungles, you know, the good old days. Millions of readers found escapist thrills in the pages of those cheaply produced magazines printed on rough Pope wood paper that made the prospect of their use as toilet paper sad and terrifying. Pope magazines cater to every imaginable reading taste, from detective yarns to pirate stories, from jungle adventures to science fiction and even romance. Porn romance. I'm guessing... Of course, but I mean, come on. Pulp helped make the world safe not only for sex, but for the gross, the shocking, and the transgressive. At some point, those things, and not a private immersion in a more edifying realm, became what people expected from the reading experience. So, from the late 1930s to the early 60s-ish, For the price of a pack of cigarettes, readers could pick up a pocket-sized tale of hard-boiled crimes, sweaty romance, or bizarre science fiction from the racks and shelves at bus stations, candy shops, bodegas, and a variety of other sales locations beyond the bookstore market. But paperbacks and their pulp offerings had a role in changing 20th century literature. They were market disruptors by putting pressure on the hardcover houses— And that meant putting pressure, in turn, on the legal regulation of print. What you could publish in the United States and Britain in 1965 was radically different from what you could publish in 1945. And pulp paperbacks were part of the reason. In the process, the pulps lost their clout in the book industry. As it would happen, mass market paperbacks turned out to not be such a stable business model. The hitch was in the pricing. While it sounds impressive to say you're moving several hundred thousand units of a product, it doesn't mean as much when the retail price is 25 cents. The money you're making is not so impressive. Digraph paid his writers a four-cent royalty. That's a penny a book, which is also what writers were paid for the armed services editions of their books. Once you figured in the retailer's cut, which was up to 50%, Paper costs and distribution, there was very little margin. Often something like half a cent a book. The game plan was to get your money out of the deal as soon as possible. But like discount retailing, you had to sell a lot to make a profit. That's why the print runs were so damn many. Your profit might only start getting positive after 100,000 copies. When everyone is doing that, it results you know, in a flooded market. In 1950, 214 million paperbacks were made in the U.S., How much book-selling dough did that? I I don't know. Bake? Only around $46 million. Millions of books went unsold. When that happened, uh, wholesalers cleaned house and sent those shits back to the publishers who either warehoused them or dumped them. So ended the great pulp paperback boom. Fortunately, that didn't completely kill the paperback industry, but instead brought it back, you know, back down to, to reality. Oh, by the way, fun fact, uh, hardcover dust jackets rarely said complete and unabridged back in the day. Unabridged meant a shortened form of the work retaining a general sense and unity of the original. Yeah, the practice of putting up phrase started on paperback covers and began because Graff worried that readers associated paperbacks with abridgments. Later, it became virtually universal among publishers of paperback reprints to slap that on there, since it suggested that you were finally getting the original uncensored text. File that under how to resell and repackage the same old as new old. Shit. So, the discovery of a market for mass market fiction led to a huge need for fiction. In some cases, classic literature would be repackaged as a pocketbook and sit on the racks next to a salacious popular fiction. When the Popes were at their height, a writer could make their living on short fiction for anthologies or monthly publications. Crazy as it is, that fiction is where we get the major tropes of detective, adventure, western, and science fiction genres we see in shows, movies, and books today. Lester Dent wrote 159 novels over 16 years for the Popes. He invented the character makeup of Doc Savage. He wrote long and short fiction for the pulp marketplace. He was one of the best. This next bit is for Patreon only, unfortunately, but don't worry. You can check it out if you become one. Link in the episode description. Editing! <laughs> Sir Barbs was not your faithful for a weekend Using the special framework he developed did a lot for Lester's career. It was Lester's plot formula cheat code that helped him to write a fuck ton of Doc Savage books, amongst other things, you know. The world met the Man of Bronze in a novel titled, oddly enough, The Man of Bronze. In March of 1933, a little less than two years after, The Shadow appeared on the magazine racks. And though Doc Savage is usually credited to Lester Dent. He was created by Street and Smith's Henry W. Ralston with the help from editor uh, John L. Nanovic. Nanovic, I don't know. N-A-N-O-V-I-C. I'm never sure how to say those names. Nanovic, Nanovic. Anyway. Uh, primarily, um, primarily, Doc Savage was made to capitalize on the surprise successes of the Shadow Magazine. Real quick here. Street and Smith, or Street and Smith Publications, Incorporated, was a New York City publisher specializing in inexpensive paperbacks and magazines referred to as dime novels and, ta Pulp Fiction. The Shadow is a fictional character created um, by Street and Smith and the writer Walter B. Gibson. It was Lester Dent, though, who crafted the character into the Superman prototype that he became. Published before Superman and Batman... Stanley credited Doc Savage as being the forerunner to modern superheroes. He's Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, Bruce Banner, and Captain America's righteousness and goodness. But uh, Doc Savage started as a pulp magazine, then branched into radio, film, and comic books. First published uh, from 1933 to 1949, and then it ran for 181 issues. 181 issues. It was not really much of a proper origin story for Doc Savage. Uh, not at least not in the book I read. So I had to fucking research it, and boy, what I found is kind of fucked up. At least by uh, at least as far as I understand, maybe by today's standards, Doc Savage was the son of a scientist and adventurer, Clark Savage Senior, and is unlike a lot of superheroes. First off, um, I'm not sure "superhero" is the right word. He had no special powers at birth, or was given any through some. You know, outside circumstance like being zapped with laser beams or uh, gamma rays or a lab accident or you know space magic or herpes. Instead, he gained his superpoweredness by being abused by his father, who raised him almost exclusively. Clark Savage Senior was obsessed with creating a son who was close to physical and mental perfection. Tell me that's not the ingredients for f**ed up child stew. Yep, seeking physical and mental perfection, he was trained from birth by his father, who brought in help. He got a team of experts and scientists together to help raise his son. They taught and trained him to become something far more than the average human, to become the perfect human specimen, to be a new type of man. Doc Savage started receiving physical training at the age of 14 months. Not sure if you're, uh, You're following along right there. So I'll repeat it. He was both physically and mentally trained from birth by his father and a team of scientists. They started at 14 months. Now, having been... Now, me having been a human being living around other human beings for quite some time, I can safely say this is not the way... uh, you raise a child, no, no. In fact, I'm willing to say, given the familiarity I have uh, with with the, all of the all of the experience I have, um, that that when you're physically and mentally trained from birth by scientists and experts, that's that's probably a, abuse of some kind. Somewhere in the neighborhood of this kid is our guinea pig, scientific experimentation kind of thing, in all probability. For anyone listening out there that has any question about this or feels that maybe I'm hitting close to home, let me clarify. If your childhood consists of a cadre of oddly specific tasks being doled out by guys in lab coats meant to elicit certain results in your physical and mental makeup, and the person giving you those tasks often, often refers to a clipboard during your interactions with them, that's not normal. Like at all. You're being experimented on. And it needs to be, it needs to be addressed, it needs to be reported. Now, okay, this, this, it do, Okay. Now this isn't specifically described as, as such in anything I found about Doc Savage, but come on, scientists, science, scientists, don't, scientists aren't going to hang around a kid just to raise them because a buddy needs help. Not unless they're, they're getting some kind of, you know, not unless they're doing some kind of studies or, or that kid is is part of some kind of experimentation that they're gonna that they're gonna build some kind of paper on to be published. Like they're gonna they're gonna they're trying shit. You know what I'm saying? Or or maybe that kid is the side effect of one of those experiments. I don't know. Do with that what you will. Doc Savage, uh, science, science experiment abuse victim. <laughs> okay, under his father's guidance, he became a polymath in that he gained a mastery of numerous fields, while also becoming a master of the martial arts. Huh. His his original training was as a surgeon, but he was equally skilled in chemistry, electricity, engineering, archaeology, and many others, because when you're being poked and prodded by Dad's scientist team, uh, you ought as well become good at everything. It's the least they can do for you. It is frequently mentioned in the adventures. uh, That Doc Savage would spend two hours every day, rarely missing a day, working on his mind and body to further improve his capabilities. This went beyond just physical tests of strength, but also mental exercises of mathematics, identifying certain odors, and testing his hearing. He thus possesses peak human capabilities as well as a genius-level intellect. Little Clark Savage will grow up to realize that he could use his abilities to help humanity, and dedicated his life to doing just that. As unrealistic as as he already is, this seems to be uh, to me just just too far. W- why wouldn't he be at least a, a little rebellious at some point, right? Maybe after maybe after this little, uh, especially after this little revelation here. Now, from the age of 13 to nearly 17, he was traveling the globe. From one master to another, he learned the skills he required to meet his purpose. A few examples of what a teenage boy did for roughly three years traveling the world. A teenage boy. Get ready for this shit. I'll try to be quick, I promise. He learned winter survival skills from fur trappers in Canada animal tracking and woodcraft from an Amazon Indian tribe. He took flying instruction from the best pilots in the world at the time, and he was schooled in diving and sea lore from Polynesians in the South Seas. He studied yoga, hypnotism, emotional control, and how to block his mind from the effects of pain in India and Tibet. He learned extensively in the martial arts of personal combat. As I said before, he also picked up the unique habit of unconsciously making a peculiar trilling noise, During moments of stress or concentration. This is written about in the book. And this is, I don't get it. I tried to look up what a voice trill sound is. And I got someone rolling their R's. So like. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, I also found a vocal coach. Talk about trilling. She's a, a, a vocal coach, opera singer. Doing some loud ass singing and calling it trilling. I don't, I can't imagine anyone doing either one comfortably in a subconscious kind of way while concentrating, you know, unless of course they were raised, maybe, by an abusive crazy scientist daddy and his deranged friends. I wasn't, so yeah, maybe I don't, I don't get it. Anyway, moving on. In Indochina, he learned how to prowl through the jungle with stealth by observing the movements. The movements of the great jungle hunters, the jaguar and tiger. A little reminder, people. He was a teenager. A f***ing teenager crawling around the jungle f***ing around with giant murder cats. Jesus Christ. In, In Africa, he met his cousin, the 7th Earl of Greystroke, who trained him in the art of using trees to travel above the jungle floor. You know, because, of course... He learned and mastered vocal imitations and ventriloquism. If all this wasn't enough to, de- to develop his other senses, Doc spent several weeks in a school for the blind, eyes bandaged except for daily exercise periods. He also attended a school for the deaf, where he learned sign language and lip reading, and at some point learned how to pick locks and open saves for some reason. Still, it wasn't until his father was murdered in the lead-up to the first adventure, The Man of Bronze, that he fully becomes the semi-superhero everyone would know him as. For those keeping up at home, Doc Savage has a genius-level intellect, is in peak physical and mental conditioning, while also being a skilled scientist, surgeon, inventor, detective, athlete, and martial arts master with a photographic memory uh, and also a master of disguise. All this shit and he never smoked weed once. Not once tripped out on fucking ass? Come on, no acid? Come on, peyote, give me a fucking break. All right. So, alcohol? Does he get shit faced? All right. So that is the man, right? Now who and what does this man work with? Does he have a job? Where the fuck does he live? Okay, for money, he's independently wealthy. In fact, his entire operation is funded with gold from a Central American mine, given to... Given... Given to him by the local descendants of the Mayans, in the first Doc Savage story, since quote since their first great adventure long ago, their activities had been funded by Mayan gold. This wealth came from a secret valley deep in the Republic of Hidalgo in Central America. Doc Savage's father had discovered it a generation or two ago. So, f- that means I don't know. The place was known as the Valley of the Vanished. Kindly, King. Cha'ak, ruled over this enclave that had survived untouched by civilization since the days of the Conquistadors. Some time after Doc Savage had been born, his father had made an arrangement with the king. The agreement stipulated that when his firstborn son came of age, he would have unlimited access to the treasure. After all, it did not do the Mayans much good since they did not interact with the outer world. (sighs) Which still doesn't know of their existence to this day. This is the legacy that Clark Savage Jr. left to his son. Doc had learned of it only upon his father's death, and following certain clues, visited the valley. There, they had been welcomed by kindly King Chaak. That's uh, that's an excerpt from the Doc Sav- unquote. <laughs> that's an excerpt from the uh, Doc Savage story, Valley of the Vanished. I. I did interject there a good bit. So, Doc's dad cut a deal with the Mayans, basically suckering them out of their gold. Uh, their people had been cultivating for a millennia, all for the you know future benefit of the kid he was raising with a bunch of scientists. I'm not saying he was an asshole, but yeah, yeah, I'm saying he was an asshole. Still, from the 1930s, exploiting a native people for their gold was, I mean, pretty par for the course as far as the world went. So, Doc's super fucking rich. He has access to cars, planes, houses, drugs, women, if he knew what to do with them. Anything he wants. He's known to be a bit of a playboy, kind of. Sort of. He frequents parties, uses the 86th floor of a world-famous New York skyscraper. It's implied, but never outright stated, as being the Empire State Building. He's also outfitted with the latest modern cutting-edge tech of the time, which uh, Lester Dent was always wedging into the stories. As someone alive now, you surely know the cost of the latest touchscreen is often equivalent to purchasing a kidney, or at the very least, prosthetic of some kind. Maybe a glass eye. I don't know what I'm saying right now. You know, phones and shit are expensive. I should have stopped right there. In addition to living the high life and using his wealth to get the latest gadgetry, he also uses it to help his friends, who in turn get into terrifying situations, many of which I would have ended that friendship over doc listen uh i know we go way back right but uh (laughs) kind of getting real tired of being tossed out of planes and shot at buddy i mean i mean and often simultaneously while on fire it's just not it's just not conducive to you know living into old age like i want to plus i think the gadgets you're making me use they might be making me sterile doc I, I, know you, I, know, I know you make the shit. I know you make the... But, but damn it, Doc. Testicles should not be glowing. Doc has come to rely on a group of five people, which are affectionately called the Fabulous Five. Yes, the Fab Five. They are experts in their given fields. Andrew Blodgett, or Monk Mayfair, uh, he's the chemist. Uh, he's named that... Because he looks like a monkey. Seriously, he's called ugly almost every time he's mentioned. Theodore Ham, Marley Brooks, is a brilliant lawyer, and apparently the best-dressed man alive, according to some sources. Uh, He also uses long-ass, obscure words that uh, all these other supposed geniuses can't understand, and they they give him a lot of blank stares. Then there's John Rennie... Renwick. He's a super talented civil engineer who also apparently punches things well. That's talked about fairly regularly, far more than his uh, civil engineering career. Then there's Thomas Long Tom Roberts, electrical engineering wizard. He's named after a f-ing cannon. I'm not joking. And William Harper Johnny Littlejohn. He's an accomplished archaeologist. Together, they fought with Doc in World War One, Then afterwards, became best crime fighter buds. Because, you know, when you're not traumatized enough by World War One, get with a group of buddies and get shot at. It's just a thing you do. For those just jumping in here, Doc Savage has basically lived a very weird life that by current measure uh, started pretty horrific, continued to be horrific for a good bit, uh, being experimented on and stuff, and it's kind of sad in its current state. Once you think about it a little bit, uh, anyway. Next, after cultivating a myriad of extremely complex skills, uh, he then, under the freakiest and probably horrifically warped circumstances, ends up in the company of people that are statistically impossible. You know what I mean? Really. Imagine you grow up without a mother, raised by Doc's maniac father who. Come on, he's experimenting on you. Anyway, he gets his friends to experiment on you. But, you know, thank God you were born a genius with the genetics uh, for great musculature and stamina and all that. Then you meet and befriend a group of random people who happen to be the most brilliant in their respective disciplines and they don't mind hanging out with you for years on end while, while, while also being all right with you, telling them what to do and willing to participate in life-threatening adventures with you also for years on end. I get it. Uh, it's a, you know, suspend disbelief for. It's, it's a fixed on character as such and so forth, but fucking shit. Give me something I don't have to suspend disbelief so much over. Still, when it comes to all the unbelievable shit, you still have to give a character like Doc, overworked, savage, you know, give the character himself an out, a place to go and get away from the throwing his best friends in the constant danger and spending, I don't know, lots of money and living in a high rise. New York traffic, you know, some. Sometimes you just got to get away. Sometimes you, Doc just has to get away. Maybe to somewhere relaxing and calming. Like an, like Antarctica. Don't think it's relaxing? Well, maybe you're a multicolored pussy then. Maybe you have hair color that doesn't match your eyes and skin. You're a regular ho-hum, non-super-genius shitbag. What's that like? I mean, why did I get so insulting all of a sudden? To tell you the truth, I don't know. Doc would not approve. I apologize. Let's diverge a little bit and talk about his influences, shall we? Like, take, for instance, the place Doc, when he goes to, like, uh, think and do deep thinking and thoughts and stuff, you know, for when New York is just too damn New York, I guess, sometimes, he wants to cleanse his soul amid the cold and howling winds. Uh, He does. He goes to Antarctica to recharge his brain and stuff. Uh, The place he likes to do that in in Antarctica, you know, to to meditate, level up or whatever. He calls it the Fortress of Solitude. Now, that might sound familiar. And there's a reason. It's because the creators of Superman lifted the detail for their hard as metal space alien fella uh, superhero guy. You know. Superman, his Antarctica thinking spot, has also got the Fortress of Solitude. And he's also nicknamed the Man Man of Steel, which is weirdly similar to the Bronze Man. And both characters are named Clark, though Clark Kent is Superman's alter ego and not uh, his straight-up name like Doc. Does this sound familiar to anyone else? Uh, It should, because his character makeup was cribbed. For not only Superman, but for damn near every superhero you've ever heard of. You know, Doc is rich, uh, single, Playboy. So, you know, Batman. Hmm? Uh, he's an inventor. With tons of money. And makes his own gadgets. Say, like, I don't know, Iron Man. He's also a funky color. And, I don't know, a scientist or something. To maybe even the Hulk. Like, he's he's the prototype for almost every superhero you've ever known. Oh, my God. It's so weird that I've never heard of them. Okay, so now we come to the part where uh, I'm going to tell you some of these stories. But I think I'm going to have to do that in a second part. Because uh, this is running really fucking long. So I'll split it. And then... (laughs) This, I swear, this will be the last two parter I ever do. I swear to Christ. I swear to. F- I Ah, uh, It happens too, too much. I, I I. get stuck and then I. I f- oh my God. So f*** it. I'm not. T- uh, no more two parters. I promise you. I promise you. I promise you. I promise you. This is the last two parter. Oh my God. I'm such a so join me in part two, and I swear I will talk about uh, the two of the stories out of the four, okay? Um, the Devil's Black Rock and the book called The Two Wise Owl. <laughs> they're, they're a little—okay, anyway, I will get to those. All right, so join me in the next part, which if you're listening to this one right after another, it will be in a couple seconds. And if not, will be in a, a, just a, a little bit. Okay. <laughs> okay uh again no more two-partners i swear to god i promise i promise i promise thank you for listening to elton reads a book a week uh if you liked what you heard uh please join me on patreon where i um drop these with the extra portions that uh are edited out for this uh free version and uh yeah, I'll see you there. I'll just be real quick. I'll just I'll just make this short. Uh send me any me- send me some messages on Facebook, you know, like the page there and stuff, or on Twitter. You can find me there, TikTok even. I have that going to Instagram. That's there too. Follow me and all that stuff. And uh, you know, let me know how things are going. Um, send me an email if you want, directly to uh Elton Book Week at gmail.com. I'll uh, read it and I'll talk to you then. <laughs> Thank you for listening above all else i i super do du- i super duper i was gonna fucking say that wasn't i i really do appreciate it and uh if you can uh read a book this week all right um let's let's not let them die out all right thank you very much uh, i appreciate it thank you